Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Last week I spoke with Matt Diavella, the director of the Netflix film Minimalism. We had a really wonderful conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed, focusing mostly on Matt's personal journey with minimalism, the benefits it's brought into his life, and how he's increased his own sense of fulfillment by redefining what success means to him. If you haven't already, I'd strongly encourage you to give it a listen. It seems to me at least that minimalism, tidying up, and general themes of cleanliness and order have become increasingly popular in the world of self-help and personal growth over the last few years. Experts on decluttering espouse benefits from raising our self-esteem and shaking off old habits, all the way up to achieving inner peace and reaching our true potential. And this isn't just good branding. There is both anecdotal and research-based evidence that orderliness has real psychological benefits. Speaking personally, I almost always feel better when I'm working in an orderly environment, and there are purely practical benefits to minimalism and tidying up as well. They often lead to people saving both time and money, two of our most valuable resources. But today we're going to continue our series on Who Am I? by looking at some of the problems that can arise when this generally good practice is pushed just a little bit too far, from mild forms of OCD to extreme fears of impurity and contamination. But before we get into the meat of our episode, I'd like to let you know about a new offering from Dr. Rick Hansen. If you've been listening to this podcast, you probably already know that regular meditation and practice can improve your physical and mental health and help you grow resilience and lasting happiness. But life is busier than ever these days, and it can be challenging to fit that regular practice into your daily routine. So you may want to check out Rick's new Growing the Good monthly meditation program that's starting in March. It includes a live guided meditation and Q&A each month, meditation downloads, weekly encouragement and inspiration, practical applications for daily life, and lifetime access to all of the recordings. We also have a special offer for podcast listeners. If you sign up now, you can save 10% if you enter the code BEINGWELL at checkout. You can follow the link in the description of this episode to access the program, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So, on that note, getting into our actual material here, I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, you do joke that you have at least a few of the genes for OCD, and after living with you for 20 or so years, uh, I'm inclined to playfully agree. But implicit in that joke is the idea that OCD or other elements of uh, obsession and compulsion ranging from, as we said in the intro, very mild levels of wanting the space to be neat all the way up to major disorders have a genetic component. For starters, is that correct? And to ask the bigger question, where do those desires for cleanliness and order that most of us have, at least on some level, come from? Right. There is a, in a sense, genetic basis for having OCD or being any particular kind of way in the sense that the genes inside our DNA, in ways that are not entirely understood, create a cascade of physical changes in us that lead us to be one way or another in terms of our basic constitution. So there's a basic genetic uh, source in that sense. So the old model was nature or nurture. Mm -hmm. And even the one before that basically was, if you think of it, the especially in Western philosophy and religion, was this dualism between the savage, instinctual, primal nature of humankind or divine, angelic, 
wonderfulness. Mm. It was kind of either or. Mm -hmm. The modern model is called interactionist. Mm. And it's usually expressed as gene X environment. Okay. I find what's really interesting about that is it leaves out gene X environment, X individual. Hello, because individuals themselves are active agents of their own growth or, mm-hmm. healing or deterioration over time. So it really ought to be gene X environment X psyche, let's say. Okay. The big three. And they, they interact with each other in really dynamic ways. If any one of those three variables is super strong, then it kind of dominates. So let's suppose you come into the world and your temperament is highly sensitive. You mm. are a colicky baby. You've always been really affected, let's say, by loud noises or sounds or textures. Some children are really affected by the textures on their on their skin. And that's just genetic. You're just born sensitive, let's say, which often also goes with wonderful qualities. It's not a critique to say that someone is sensitive. Or let's suppose you're born and you're kind of truculent. You're just prickly. Mm. You're warm in the temper. You're Mm -hmm. in the classic temperaments. You're choleric, a little irritable, easily provoked, Mm -hmm. quickly exasperated. And what do you do then? Right? So to me, that's kind of the question in a funny way. If you know what your temperamental tendencies are. So now fast forward Mm -hmm. to adulthood, where still we have tremendous influence over who we are becoming. If you know that your temperament is inclined in this direction, how can you help yourself unfold? in ways that feel good to you and and probably are helpful to others too. Okay. So for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to mostly use the idea of OCD as an example for the the dark side of some of these very positive tendencies that many people have toward order, cleanliness, minimalistic spaces, and so on. OCD is broken up into two big parts shown in its name, um, obsessions and compulsions. We use the word obsessed pretty casually in day-to-day life, but what does that word mean clinically in the context of OCD? So the classic way of thinking about a disorder is that it disrupts social or occupational functioning and or leads to a lot of personal distress. Hmm. And this way of thinking about a disorder puts it in culture. For example, just because something would seem really inappropriate, say, in a life living in a, in a big city with a technology job, say, doesn't necessarily mean that that same behavior would be considered crazy or pathological or problematic in, let's say, a hunter-gatherer tribe living in the Brazilian rainforest. Mm-hmm. So it's important to locate these things culturally. But the essence really boils down to functioning and experiencing. If something is really disrupting your functioning and or it's leading you to a lot of suffering, then it tends to be uh, placed into the general category of psychopathology Hmm. or a mental disorder. So if we're going to talk about obsessive compulsiveness, we want to think of it and we're talking about it as a disorder. So we're Mm -hmm. going to the D word here. We want to think about it in terms of those two criteria, either or both significantly disruptive to functioning and or significantly disruptive to well-being. So then in that context, uh, to do the O and the C. Uh, So an obsession is an idea that you just can't get out of your head. It feels intrusive. It's invasive. It's bothersome. It's not pleasant. Like, for example, if a person spends a lot of time thinking about their favorite sports team or rock and roll star or their relationship with their dog, 
that's not necessarily an obsession. Mm. The question is, does it create, does it disrupt functioning and experiencing? Uh, is it unwanted? So for example, people will have these uh, intrusive thoughts that they should go do something terrible to another person, including their own children. And it's very disturbing to them for that to arise. It's not like a passing word idea. It's like, uh, they can't get it out of their head. This idea that they ought to go drown their baby or something mm. like that. And uh, they're horrified by it. Or they might have this obsession with the thought that other people think that they are ugly or hate their appearance. Mm. For example, I've worked with people who have what's called body dysmorphic disorder in which people are obsessed with what they look like. And with that obsession as a topic is the opinion that they look terrible, even though they look perfectly fine, actually. So for us, I, wanna, I don't mean to put you on the spot too badly here, but are there, let's say, are there things that you think about a lot that you care a lot about, and yet you would never think of them as obsessions because they're really not? Yeah. I mean, I think that most of our common interests as we move through the world fall into the category of things that we are intrigued by, but which are not debilitating in terms of our everyday functioning. And I think that that's the important point to emphasize here, which is this idea that, I mean, research has shown that most people have intrusive thoughts from time to time, even ranging up, frankly, to pretty macabre ones. Mm -hmm. But that's really quite different from what we're describing here, wherein there is the repeated aggressive intrusion that triggers an experience internally, often a kind of extreme anxiety, but sometimes some other feelings that directly impede our ability to function in an everyday kind of sense. Yeah. And that's really the distinction between OCD and just sort of kind of typical thoughts that are either, quote unquote, I'm obsessed with this band mm -hmm. or are you know, whoa, that was that was a weird thought. Where did that come from? Yeah. But which we're able to banish from our consciousness pretty quickly and easily. Yeah. People sometimes get obsessed around certain themes, like they're obsessed around cleanliness mm. or fears of contamination mm -hmm. or obsessed uh, with uh, protective concerns for family members, perhaps children. Mm -hmm. They might be obsessed, and this was where it starts sliding into stalking and things that are really creepy. Hmm. where pe one person might be really obsessed with what another person is doing and want to know always what they're doing and who mm -hmm. they're doing mm -hmm. with. Jealousy, in a way, is a kind of obsession, if mm -hmm. you think of it. Intense, problematic jealousy. A lot of these, these sort of so-called disorders kind of blur into each other. Like I've talked about the intersection, let's say, between obsession and pathological jealousy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could also say that there's uh, an intersection between obsession and hypochondriasis, where you're, you're really obsessed, you're preoccupied with the state of your own body when there's really no medical reason to be so preoccupied. So they overlap each other. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's, it's trippy territory to think about what's the fine line between being obsessed and having high standards or yeah, really sure. trying to get to the body bottom of something. Mm -hmm. I, I think about this uh, kind of PBS TV show about the guy who figured out, I think it was Fermat's last theorem, this incredibly intense mathematical problem mm -hmm. that had preoccupied uh, mathematicians for centuries. And he's a British guy who just was, as he says, obsessed with his problem. He thought about it and thought about almost nothing else for 
something like four months or four years in a row. And then he finally figured it out. And uh, it was this extraordinary revelation to him. Would we say he was clinically obsessed or just passionate about mm. something he did? Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting territory. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to frame it, where there is sort of a vague line between these two things. And again, for me, I think that what it probably comes back to is your ability to function normally in society, mm -hmm. uh, given, of course, that as you were saying initially, societies differ yeah. and what may be a inappropriate obsession in one might be kind of perfectly normal in another. So all that being said, uh, let's move on to the other side of OCD, which is compulsions. Mm -hmm. So what's a compulsion and why does an obsession lead to a compulsion? That's great. Great, great. Yeah. Well, classic compulsions are things like hand washing, mm. where people literally feel they have to wash their hands a hundred times after mm -hmm. using the bathroom and they'll just count a hundred times. They mm. have to do it and their hands are raw. Their hands are bleeding. Mm. It creates social issues. They have to wear gloves. Otherwise they're really embarrassed. And yet they can't not wash their hands. Another classic is checking related to safety. So you leave the house, but you make yourself go back to make sure you turned off the stove or the water, or something like that. And then you walk out of the house again, but you have to go back and check. Mm. And here in some of these compulsions, you could see the working of doubt because people will doubt themselves. Well, did I really check? How do I know I really checked? How do I, how do I prevent making a mistake? So a lot of compulsive behavior is a kind of gesture in the direction of warding off something terrible. And that which is terrible entwines often with what people are obsessed about, hmm. such as uh, fears of terrible events or the thought that they might leave the stove on and burn down the house and that would be terrible and they would feel ashamed of themselves and really horrible about themselves so for sure they don't want to risk the possibility of that hmm. so so what is the compulsion trying to respond to inside of an obsession what's the what's the healing nature of a compulsion to an obsession yeah, it's a great question. So there's been a lot of sort of work on this. Freud started out by thinking about some of the underlying functions that are served by the compulsion. Mm -hmm. And there is some evidence that these compulsions start with some underlying psychological basis. Mm. Let's say the the classics, because it's considered to be an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of deal mm. dealing with threats. OCD is classified among the anxiety disorders. It's not a depression disorder. It's not a sexual disorder, although people can become obsessive and compulsive in that area as well. So what's anxiety about? It's about dealing with threat and challenges to safety. So there's this notion that the compulsion or the obsession typically rotates around. It's sort of like a dog chained to a post, uh, the post being that sense of threat somewhere. Then though, very often the post is gone, but the dog still circles a post mm. in a sense. What I mean is the obsession, the compulsion takes on a life of its own and it becomes a habit in effect. And if you think about it, think about these funny habits we have where we chew our fingernails or we want to flick away a little piece of skin on the edge of our fingernail, or we always, I don't know, uh, you know, sit in a chair in a certain mm -hmm. way. Yeah. And if we're prevented from that habit, it's really disruptive, right? We keep going back to mm -hmm. it. We keep mm -hmm. wanting to do it, but we're not allowed to do it. 
This actually goes to some of the main treatments for dealing with compulsions like fears of safety or people who can't go outside. Mm. OCD and phobias start blurring together because a person could be compulsive about avoiding a certain Mm. thing. Let's suppose a person is completely, I, I knew someone who would not use, could not use a bathroom in a public place. He just couldn't. So he actually started having gastrointestinal issues mm. because he just would not, and he'd have to go for eight, 10 hours in a row, not using a bathroom because he just could not allow himself to be around a contaminated environment like that. What do you do with that? Very often the way the treatment looks for that, it's called exposure and response prevention, mm-hmm. where you, you know, the person has to sign up for it and they sign up for it. Well, Let's say they go down to the train station with the therapist, use the bathroom, Mm -hmm. rub their hands on the doorknobs and (laughs) all the other, and then people in their life prevent them from washing their hands for the next three days. Wow. And it's like, and you have to, it's a graduated process. Otherwise it's ineffective and it actually just re-traumatizes people and makes it work. But where you, you kind of work your way up exposure Mm -hmm. and response prevention. Mm -hmm. That's a fundamental kind of paradigm, which also goes to ways we can do it ourselves on our own, Mm -hmm. where we expose ourselves. Maybe we're not in full OCD land, but we expose ourselves to something that's a little disturbing to us. And then we just don't let ourselves do that habitual behavior that we're trying to um, free ourselves of. Yeah, and I w- I want to return to this idea of how do we work with and manage issues around OCD, but I want to start by asking a question that occurred to me when you related OCD to habits of various kinds or bad habits of various kinds. I have a bad habit of biting my nails. I'm a chronic nail biter, but biting my nails does not impede my functioning socially. Right. It, do I wish that I would change it? Yes, absolutely. But is it really impacting my life in a negative way? Not really. Yeah. And even so, if I really wanted to, I could, you know, stop biting my nails. Yeah. So w- what I'm trying to get to here is I think that most people with OCD recognize that they have a disorder, or at least many of the people do. Some mm-hmm. don't, but many, many do. And yet they find the compulsions exceedingly difficult to break. Mm-hmm. So what is it about these compulsions that makes them uniquely challenging for somebody to break the habit of? Well, again, a great question. And there's not super great answers to it. Mm-hmm. In a way, what you're getting at is how are behaviors acquired? Yeah. In, including influenced by innate factors. And then once they're acquired, to what extent can a person unlearn them mm-hmm. and learn alternative behaviors? And what's the difference really between a behavior that is virtuous and really important to somebody mm-hmm. that they're just not going to give up? They're, let's say, not going to give up advocating for their kid who's got some learning issues for the next 12 years of school. They're just not going to give that up. They're going to keep doing it. On the other hand, what about this person who just can't drive to work through any route other than a very specific one? that they've done for 20 years and they are really thrown if they ever have to deviate from that route. What's the difference? And it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. And um, there's details about how our behavior is acquired in the brain, the circuitry that involves these structures that sit on top of the brain stem, essentially Mm -hmm. a lot involving the parts of the brain called the basal ganglia that acquire certain movement patterns, certain behaviors 
it's not incredibly well understood the microcircuitry of behaviors that become really problematic. So for example, sometimes people will acquire, they're called stereotypies or these, it's a strange word, these behaviors, including in their gestures, Mm -hmm. they can't get out of. It's like a Mm -hmm. tick. They have to repeatedly lift their hand up and adjust their glasses. And they can't not do that again and again. It serves no function. Their glasses are positioned just fine. It's actually distracting. Other people make fun of them at work. It's disruptive. And yet they can't not adjust their glasses. Very often, like they have to pull on their mustache. I'm thinking of someone in particular I know. Hmm. Scratch their mustache, push their glasses up, rub their hair back, and then drop their arm again. Mm Mm-hmm. What's going on? What's going on in the circuitry of the brain that they have to do that? It's a tick. It's called a motor tick. And does it matter? So that's kind of what I would just say about it. The deep circuitry of this is not super well understood. It also goes to medication and different treatments for people to help people unlearn these things. Uh, Sometimes what happens is that if you disrupt someone's compulsion or obsession, then it reappears elsewhere. There's a Mm. term called symptom substitution. So, okay, so let's suppose you finally get this person to stop washing their hands, but now they can't leave the house because they're really afraid of, they're obsessed with the idea that they will make a mistake. By the way, obsessions, compulsions have to do with the fear of personal error. Maybe they're obsessed with the thought that they'll make a mistake and they'll think of the light is uh, green when it's actually red and step out and be run over by a truck. They never had that fear until they suppressed or unlearned, let's say, the hand-washing compulsion. Mm. So you have to really, and that goes to the deeper question that you've been raising in a sense about to what extent does an anxious temperament create a kind of reservoir of fuel for these different patterns, obsessions, compulsions, And to what extent is it important to really address that underlying material Mm. somehow the the function that the OCD serves if you're going to help someone get better about it? Yeah. So kind of following along on that point, as you were mentioning a moment ago, one of the treatments in a clinical environment that might be given to somebody who suffered from a severe form of OCD is that sort of exposure therapy Mm -hmm. where you ramp up exposure to the uncomfortable experience until it's sort of revealed to the person's subconscious that they won't actually die if they touch the doorknob Mm -hmm. or whatever their version of it might be. So that being said, either clinically or at kind of the 50% mark of what we're talking about here, maybe not somebody who is literally housebound or somebody who literally has to wash their hands 30 times every time that they use the restroom, but someone who just feels very attacked or imperiled when the space is messy. Yeah. Or somebody who every time they leave the house, they have to say, wait a moment, and they have to run back in and make sure that the oven's off. Yeah. Or whatever it might be. What's something that somebody could do to work with that material and try to break that connection between the obsession and the compulsion? Yeah. I think first, building up general resources inside, like we've talked about, the capacity to relax at will, to calm yourself, Mm. resource of feeling protected and safe enough, noticing you're all right right now. Those are general resources. I think a second thing is insight. And psychoanalysis and psychodynamic thinking is strong on this territory. And my own opinion as a psychologist been around the block 
is that a lot of contributions there have been unfairly dismissed or kind of trivialized. So it can be sometimes really quite helpful to ask yourself, what's the function that this behavior serves? Mm. What's the deep function of it? And occasionally you'll have a deep insight. For example, you might realize, I'm going to give you an extreme example and Mm -hmm. a bit of a trigger warning here. You might realize that, let's say, a cleanliness compulsion or an obsession with contamination has to do, I'll just make up a story, with, uh, let's say, a sibling who was really ill and had a very impaired immune system. And you, as the kid, got a lot of criticism and shaming and, and attacking during your toilet training years about being dirty and that it was really, really important to be super clean for Susie, your big sister, who's got asthma and is really, really vulnerable. Mm. Let's say I just made that up. So then you suddenly realize, oh, wow, that's where it came from. And I'm no longer living with Susie. Bless her heart. She's my sweet sister, but she's over there and I live here and I'm not going to infect her and I can lighten up about all this in a nutshell. So there is a, the second thing I would suggest to help yourself, ask yourself, what's the function that's serving? And then I think the last thing I would just suggest as a path is to challenge yourself in little ways. Mm. It is to be okay with it. I had a client once, wonderful person who was grappling with some tendencies in this area herself. And she noticed that I tended to like setting my yellow pad down on the table squared away to the edges of the table between mm, us. Mm-hmm. And I would just sort of adjust it. And one time where I was talking with her about her need for order and, and cleanliness, and she would deliberately reach over and tweak my pad <laughs> just to mess with me. And she looked at me and we were both laughing and, you know, I got it. And then I set the pad back where it really belonged, but I, I could have tolerated though. I could have challenged myself. And uh, in the process of that, it goes to this thing, you and I've talked about a lot of risking the dreaded experience Mm -hmm. where you challenge yourself within range. So it's not an overwhelming challenge. And then you notice that, you know, it's really okay to not do the dishes every time, Mm -hmm. or it's really okay to live with a certain messiness in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. It's not going to end the world. Uh, And then you can become more used to it. Yeah, for me, I think that in our relationships with people, there are a lot of things that it really makes sense to take the approach of discretion as the better part of valor on. Uh-huh. If your sweet sister, to continue to use an example, is the kind of person who needs to go back into the house and check the stove every time you leave, maybe it's best to just kind of shrug at it and go, you know what, it's an extra 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. No one's going to die today based off of this extra 30 seconds. Yeah. But I can also imagine scenarios where over time, our relationship with somebody starts to get negatively impacted mm-hmm. by behaviors related to these compulsions or obsessions of different kinds. So if we know someone, maybe it's not ourselves, but we're trying to help somebody else either come into recognition of these issues or manage them inside of their own life, what are some of the things that we can do? Well, there's a two-parter. First part, I want to underline a key issue on the table with OCD, which is autonomy. Mm. In other words, are you free to do the dishes or not? And then inside that frame of freedom, do you prefer to do the dishes or do you prefer to say to yourself, I don't want to deal with them at night. I'll do the dishes in the morning. I'm perfectly comfortable with leaving them in the sink overnight. And I just want to kick back tonight. Are you free in in your relationship there? And obsessions and compulsions are considered to be in many ways, an expression of a loss of autonomy. Mm. You're not the boss of your own mind or your own behavior. And you're not the master of your own house, as it were. So the restoration 
of autonomy is a key issue. And if you're working with somebody else, let's say, it's a fair question to really ask that other person, why do you do these things? Are, and is it rational? Do you, and do you feel free to not do them? And I think we can sometimes get uptight about other people's compulsive behaviors or threat management behaviors because they stir us up. When in fact, the truth is, as you said, we could just let it go by. It's really mm. okay. It's not a particular cost to us. It's not horrible. On the other hand, I think there's a place to ask someone if their compulsion is really kind of getting in the way, right? To really ask, is there a rational purpose behind this? Mm. And to lead with tolerance, I think there's a place for that, to realize that they may well have a rational purpose behind it. Or for them, a lot of what OCD is about in a way, or these behaviors are based on a probabilistic estimate of risk. So maybe that person thinks the odds of the bad event are one in a thousand, and that's intolerable for them. Hmm. So like my dad, my dad, as you may know, in a really sweet way, when I was old enough to drive my car, he would check my tires he, and I'd come visit him. And he was so sweet. He walked me out to the car and he would just kind of walk around the car because he grew up on a ranch where if you had a blowout, it was a potentially life-threatening situation in the mm. wintertime, especially because you were 30 miles from anything and who's going to help you. And it's old cars, old tires. You had to be careful about that kind of thing. So in his mind, that was a really prudent thing to do. In my mind, it seemed a little too daddish, a little too controlling. <laughs> hey, dad, I know how to run my car. You know, it was like a, my autonomy got stirred up around it and like, whoa, who are you to check my car? Don't you think I'm smart enough, you know, check my car, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, it was okay. You know, I didn't need to create a ruckus with him about it. On the other hand, I definitely have been in situations where sometimes people's safety concerns are just over the top. Mm. And about the fifth time it happens, it's like you kind of want to raise it and say, you know, I just don't want to deal with my kitchen in this way. Mm -hmm. Or I'm just not that worried about this kind of food or disease. I'm just not going to wear a mask. I'm just not that concerned about germs. So I want to pop back for us and ask you a question here, in a sense. In all of this OCD material is a collision between what people, in effect, want and the nature of reality. What I mean by that is that compulsions are about control and creating one corner of your life that's ordered the way you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And yet reality is entropic. It's tending toward chaos and disorder. It's disruptive. Alan Watts had this line, life is wiggly. Mm -hmm. Same with obsessions. Uh, when people think about things, a lot of what's underneath it all is that they're, they're trying to control something. They're trying to figure out how to make something be the way they want it to be. Mm -hmm. And yet here too, the world is continually disappointing. And I, I wonder if this whole topic of OCD gets at a really broad and interesting topic, which is what is our relationship with inherent disorder and with dirt and with mess and then the smelly, mm, mm -hmm. yeasty, sometimes icky substrate of biolog biological existence, mm -hmm. et cetera. You know? What do you think about that? That's a big, messy topic. My inclination is to answer this in a vaguely existential way, and I kind of want to stay away from the existential to a certain extent. Yeah, I think that just giving my own opinion here, and this is just one guy's opinion, and I don't pretend to be either 
a doctor of anything, and I offer this opinion entirely lightly. I think that a lot of our problematic functioning in the world comes from the desire to control things of various kinds that can't really be controlled very well, whether that be our personal safety. And as we move through life, somebody else is driving a car in a manner we don't like, so we kind of freak out a little bit. Or it'd be about our relationships. I just want that person to love me. And guess what? They just don't love me. Or it'd be about our work trajectory and kind of waking up when we're 35 or 45 or 55 and looking around and going, wait a second, this is really not what I had in mind. I just read something earlier today that was a funny one-liner and also hit me kind of hard, which was inside of every 85-year-old, there's an 18-year-old looking around going, what the heck just happened? (laughs) And I think that that's what a lot of the root of these various compulsions are about, is they're about trying to look around and going, wait, what just happened? And because we don't have a good answer for that question, we resort to various modes of explanation. That's really interesting. And we try to control some little corner Mm -hmm. of a world that seems chaotic and out of control. Yeah, absolutely. So- you know, the the world is falling apart around me, but at least my bookshelf is clean yeah. to do a kind of extreme example of it. And this is not an intended as a poo-pooing of various forms of the Marie Kondo, like tidying up or any kind of straightening or order philosophies around that. I think there is a good and valuable place for that kind of work. But I also think that there is a way in which sometimes the underlying root of it rests in a a deep fear and a deep um, discomfort Mm -hmm. with the inherent messiness and disorder and unpleasantness often of our lives. Yeah. That's some deep stuff. You ought to have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Every every once in a while, I try to kind of tell something out there, right? No, I mean, I, I do think it's all interesting stuff, and that's part of why we're talking about it here. I suppose that that's a little bit of a bow on this, uh, you know, wild and woolly podcast episode where we really wandered from one topic to another. But I hope that you, the listener, uh, enjoy it and had a good time listening today. So to offer a quick recap, we spent the majority of this episode talking about OCD, which is sort of the extreme negative version of the topics in both the preceding episode, my conversation with Matt Diavella on minimalism and the episode which is going to follow this one, which is a great conversation that we had with Gretchen Rubin, the many-time New York Times bestselling author and host of the podcast Happier with Gretchen Rubin. When we talked about OCD, we began by exploring where does OCD come from? Is it heritable? Is it non-heritable? Or is it some kind of messy fusion of the two? And we landed predictably on that last one, the messy fusion of the two, And indeed, kind of acknowledging that the underlying systems that both create OCD in our brains and link the obsessions and the compulsions and why are these compulsions so hard to get rid of and all of that material is really kind of challenging to unpack and understand on a deep level. What we do understand is that sometimes people are obsessed about the things. And this isn't the way that you're obsessed with your favorite band. This is a kind of obsession that really inhibits functioning. You gave a couple of great examples of different kinds of obsessions and the compulsions that stem from them. Compulsions in general are intended as an antidote of sorts to these obsessions. They're behaviors that avail a concern that a person has generally related to an underlying feeling of anxiety and uncertainty 
around a particular thing. So maybe you have a fear around personal safety. So you run back into the house to make sure that it's not going to burn down because you left your stove on. We spent a little bit of time talking about ways to manage OCD inside of our own experience. You gave the recommendation to really look into this question of, am I at cause or am I at effect? Am I agent in my choices? Am I doing this because I want to, or am I doing this because I feel like I have to? And that's really a sort of fundamental underlying question we have here. Then we sort of concluded the section on OCD by asking, how can we help other people manage these feelings inside their own lives? You gave a number of cautions there because this can be a difficult thing to interact with with another person. But fundamentally, you suggested that we can raise that question of at choice with someone, and we can also sort of point to it and acknowledge it because often people aren't even aware of these own compulsive behaviors. So that's it for today's episode. Again, I would like to let you know about the monthly meditation program that Rick has. It's going to be starting in March. The link to that is in the description of today's episode. And I think that it's really worth checking out. If you would like to sign up for it, you can enter the code BEINGWELL at checkout for 10% off the purchase price. And I hope you'll join us again next week for our conversation with Gretchen Rubin. But until then, thanks for listening. 